dig this. First 125, Moro here from Grundahl. Kingsley turns that five sideways. Brian, the gate is down. This is a sharp left-hander. Who's going to shot? Looks like Darcy Lange on that Richmond Gallon Kawasaki gets the jump. That's where it all started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Meta, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. Fly Racing, Bills Pipes, W Wheels, Motul MX, X-Brand Goggles, Moto Ice Wrap, and Moto Stuff make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by Meta. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With us on the line, we've got none other than Ryan Clark. Ryan, how's it going? Uh, going very well, man. Just um, actually took a week off from work to uh, do a little work around the house. And I had a new addition to my family about three weeks ago. And so, you know, all the stuff that comes with the new baby, getting the nursery done and uh, all that fun stuff. So been working on that. Awesome. Well, uh, on behalf of uh, Big MX, uh, congratulations. You're now the, the proud father of four now? Correct. So, yeah, wow. I've got three boys and a girl. So I lucked out a little bit that way. Uh, all too, all too often, us motocross racers uh, end up with uh, a house full of women. Yeah, no, that's true. But I always treated women really well, so I think like I got rewarded, you know. Yeah, good karma. Later on in my life, by only having to do it. So, oh, <laughs> my wife, I guess. Counts yeah. Awesome. So, uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Really looking forward to uh, kind of going through uh, your life uh, in within motocross with its fine tooth comb, which, uh, to what I understand, still uh, somewhat exists today. Of course, uh, like uh, I got to imagine, you still throw a leg over a, over a motocross bike on, on a rare occasion. Oh, sorry, you're breaking up there. Not not a bunch, but. Uh... I go out to the track. My kids ride a little bit. It's fun for me just watching them. You know, uh, yeah. I kind of, I got it out of my system. I'm, I'm done with injuries and just too many, really too many mouths to feed right now. Can't afford any downtime. So. Fair enough. Well, before we get into uh, the motocross career and, and how this all started, uh, how do you feed those mouths nowadays? Uh, I know uh, things have uh, uh, you've gone through a lot of changes since uh, your, your pro days. Yeah. So when I when I walked away from racing, I mean, I I kind of I kind of knew it was going to be just uh, I'd have to do it cold turkey because I thought if I stayed uh, competitive, you know, physically and still was on the bike a lot, I'd probably get sucked back into it as, you know, a lot of people often do uh, when they try to walk away. So uh, I think it was a monster cop. I decided I'd had enough and and that was it. I told my, my wife, like, you know what, we're, we're done. Uh, Let's go home and figure out what the next move is. And uh, I had been training a, a young rider whose dad had, um, I, I guess he was sort of a division manager at one of the larger construction companies here. 
And uh, he had told me, you know, if I wanted to get into construction, to give him a call. And so I did. Uh, he told me I needed to get my, my CDL, my commercial driver's license. So I took, uh, you know, a week to study up on that, went and took the test, got my CDL, and then I started that following week just doing little odds and ends around their their warehouse, you know, little wiring jobs and fixing hose bibs and just random stuff. And then I went out in the field and uh, driving the water truck and watching guys put pipe in the ground and, and shoot grade and, you know, build roads and do all kinds of different things. So it was a, it was a steep learning curve for me going from, you know, kind of like motocrossers are kind of like farmers in a way. Um, you know, you learn to run everything. You, you're kind of like a jack of all trades, master of none. And that's yeah. sort of been the story of, I guess the story of my life, you know, I got <clears throat> really good at most things uh, from my experience with racing, be it building tracks or, you know, building uh, decks to send out to, you know, potential sponsors or, you know, I'm very well versed in a lot of things. So that, that lent itself, you know, favorably to me as I went out into business and in construction. And so I moved up pretty quickly. I went from, you know, watering, you know, basically like, you know, it's like prepping a track. <laughs> you you yeah, need that right. perfect amount of moisture, you know, for, to get compaction. And uh, so I went from that and also laboring, putting pipe in the ground, you know, uh, demoing old catch basins and concrete pipe and, you know, old water lines, whatever, whatever that, that day, you know, held in store. So got a crash course in it real quick. And within about two years, I was um, running crews uh, on, you know, a, a urban, project right in the center of phoenix and putting storm drain in the ground 16 foot deep and you know had a 12 to, to 14 man crew working on on the mainline pipe and just kept kind of learning and trying to, to pick up new things and change things around the, from the way they did it you know from old old school construction and bring a little of my flavor to it and it ended up being real successful i had a you know, a time where we were getting more production than, than any of the other crews that, that this company had. And, and so after about a year of being in that position, I decided I, I liked the, the work, but not the company. So, uh, I put in my notice and I was going to go back to doing some web design and some other things that I'd done, you know, throughout my career, just kind of as a hobby. Um, and then I got offered a position with the company that I'm with now, which is uh, Stacy and Whitbeck. And uh, they do light rail construction solely, uh, light rail, trolley car, um, and, and all of the infrastructure that goes with it. So I've been uh, with Stacy and Whitbeck for a little over a year, and it's a great company. And so I hope, you know, it's a career for me, and I hope to be there through retirement. There you go. Uh, uh, if you were to tell the uh, the 21 year old uh, Ryan Clark that uh, he'd be uh, holding down the position you have right now, uh, what would he say? Um, you know, I don't know. I I never was. I always loved racing, obviously, um, so much so that I decided to forego all the other things in my life. Um, I probably d wouldn't have uh, understood like this, the, the allure of the stability of having, you know, this type of a position. I think I probably, when I was 21, I thought, you know, when I'm 38, I'll be 
managing a team or doing something in the industry. But what I learned from the time I was, you know, 21 till now is that it's damn near impossible to make a living in the motorcycle industry. Um, you just scraping, you know, it's always like the next thing if, if you're a sales guy, I mean, you know, if the, if you're with the right brands, you can do well, but I mean, I, I never really wanted to do sales. Um, if you're a product rep or a writer rep or sports marketing guy, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot, you know, you fall into a good position, but I don't know. I, there's just not stability. And so I think, you know, my years of experience of making bad decisions led me to this one good one. So I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. No doubt. And you're totally right. Um, it's uh, unless you're able to uh, lock down that, that perfect position for, for, uh, um, to, to sustain you for a long period of time. Uh, most people that are in the industry either have to wear many hats or change hats, uh, like constantly, like one, one, uh, one year you're an agent, one year you're a team manager, one year you're a goggle rep, and next year you're uh, building goggles for your uh, biggest competitor the year previous, uh, or, or, doing, or doing all three at the same time. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's something that, uh, I definitely can connect with, uh, as, as a bricklayer, uh, it's awfully nice to be able to work, uh, seven till three every single day, the occasional Saturday and, uh, and, and have some stability there. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, when you have a family and I mean, those things obviously have much more value than when it's just you. And if you, um, make a bad decision, it only affects you. Obviously now it, it affects a lot of people for, you know, in my position. So I, I try to make the the best decisions, you know, that I can with the, with the knowledge that I have. And some, like I said, sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't, but um, it's all part of the ride. So what's the uh, be all end all best thing about uh, your new, your new life uh, working construction? Uh, what are some of the things you really like about it? What are some of the things you miss about your pro days? Uh, I mean, the best thing about it is just having a plan, you know, knowing where I'm going to be. Um, you know, I'm, I just turned 38, so, you know, I'm going to retire, obviously, someday. And the thing that really, really sucked about when I was racing was I, really, I literally had nothing, you know, and it wasn't because I didn't make decent money at some points, but it was just so inconsistent that year followed by the bad year and then if you have a couple of bad ones in a row i mean then you're back to square one um so i did have some i did have some retirement and uh some other things built up but then i don't know coincidentally or or uh or not but i ended up getting divorced you know right towards the end of of my racing career and anybody who's been through that knows that it's not cheap and um hell hath no you know uh, fury <laughs> like that of a woman, woman scorned. So no doubt. Uh, I ended up, you know, just to be able to keep my lights on literally, you know, draining my retirement and, uh, it, you know, it wasn't great, but like I said, for me, it was, uh, another experience that made me who I am and made me appreciate, um, the things I have now and, and the wife that I have now and, and just the ability to spend time with my children and so I would say the, the best thing about it now is just, you know, knowing that um, five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line, 
my family is going to have the things they need to, you know, my kids are going to have the things they need to either go down a, a similar path to what I did um, or go to college and, and do whatever they want to do. So uh, the worst part about it, or I guess the part I miss about racing is, um, like I'd mentioned before, you know, I, I consider myself to be a jack of all trades, right? But the one thing I was really good at was, you know, racing um, and the things that have to do with setting up a race program. So not getting to use those those skills is a little bit um, frustrating at times. But uh, there's so much about it that I don't miss also that I think it's kind of like a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So I, you can always like think back on a relationship, whether it's a relationship with a, a girl, a relationship with a, you know, a, a profession or your sport or whatever it is. And you tend to remember the really good things about it and push back some of the bad stuff. Um, but all I have to do is go back to the races and, and then I remember a lot of the bad stuff that I, that frustrated me about it. So I don't get, you know, the honeymoon is over for me. I'm not like this dreamy eyed, you know, kid that's going to make $20 million racing dirt bikes. I know that's for a very select few. I wasn't, um, I'm not gonna say I didn't have the talent to do it, but I didn't have the drive to do it. And, um, you know, I'm happy with where I'm at. So I can pop back in and have some fun with it and go watch some races and hang out with some of the, my friends at the track and be happy. And then, come back to the real world where, you know, people aren't uh, self-important because they know how to twist a throttle or, you know, they hang out with a fast guy and they have frosted tips, you know? Mm, yeah. Oh, frosted tips watches. is a bad look. Uh, unfortunately, a good portion of your pro career included frosted tips. Yeah, a lot of it did. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, it's on to the next trend or whatever, but now, I mean, I think what I'm alluding to is just, you know, the, the there's a lot of people in the industry that, I don't really know what they're there for exactly. I don't yeah. think they could really tell you. Um, and and a lot of you know it, it is what it is. Every there's the good and the bad. You take the good with the bad and everything. And, and um, I just really loved the pure racing. I loved it. I loved the gate drop when you didn't have to think about any of that other hypocrites and um, you just rode your dirt bike and it was a, a measured thing. You know it drops at the same time for everyone and the checkered flags, the same number of laps away for everyone. And you just go. So absolutely. It's uh it's that uh, unmistakable feeling when the, when the gate drops and uh, everyone comes off the set at the line at the same time. And uh, best uh, guy who makes it to the first corner uh, basically uh, controls things. And it's, and then it's a chess match from there. Um, and I guess that's, that's a good opportunity to start, kind of slide into uh, how, uh, how you came to uh, to eventually rise to stardom, and it all started with uh, one motorcycle, and and most likely a rather young uh, individual uh, starting his uh, career in in riding. Who introduced you to uh, to motocross in uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, uh, what were some of the earliest days were like for you uh, riding? Um, well, originally, my next door neighbor had a little JR fifty. And, uh, we, you know, he ride it in an empty lot, a couple, you know, a couple houses down and I would, you know, go out with him and ride it around a little bit. I don't even know if my parents knew at that point, I was probably like six or six years old, maybe. And, um, 
And eventually my dad got me a bike. Um, I'd say probably later that year when I was six, he got me a bike and I rode it a handful of times and, and I'm sure like he had no mechanical skills at that point. So probably just didn't change the filter or something and it wasn't getting air and it stopped running, but, um, ended up just sitting in the garage. It wasn't until, uh, my seventh birthday that my dad got me a KX 60 and, um, was kind of from there on out. I mean, I just fell in love with it and, uh, really just all, all I wanted to do was ride. Um, so my dad had a bike and he was into it a little bit too. Um, he had a little bit of background, you know, in Northern California racing, like some TTs and flat tracks and things like that, but, but nothing too serious. So, um, you know, we'd go out and just ride around the, in the desert. We lived right on the, right on the cusp of basically nothingness behind us in Albuquerque. And, um, you know, there was a hundred miles plus of just desert. So we'd, we'd just go out and make our own little trails and tracks and, and whatever. And as I grew, you know, we, we raced around New Mexico and then we raced around Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, started traveling a little bit. And my parents gave me a lot of freedom. Like I could just go riding with my friends. I could, you know, what, by the time I got my driver's license, uh, when I was 15, I mean, I was driving all over, you know, the state to go riding basically. And, um, with, you know, I'd go pick up like Gio and Ivan Tedesco after school and we'd go out and, and just go ride. So pretty much my, I didn't have a ton of success early on. I mean, I was fast, but, uh, I just rode a lot and that was probably, I mean, that was obviously the best thing for me, just bike time and, and, uh, slowly climbed from, you know, a top five guy to a top three guy. And then, you know, I kind of hit my, kind of came into my own, I guess, you know, when I was like 14, I started winning some motos and, um, I had a tough class though. I mean, class was like the Ricky Carmichael, Kevin Windham, Robbie Raynard time. Um, so, you know, Robbie and Kevin were, you know, Robbie was a, a little bit older. Kevin was the same age. Ricky was a little bit younger. So it was like any class I was in was just, there was a superstar in it, which was, you know, it's tough, tough to, especially when you're a young kid and you see a guy like Ricky Carmichael in ads and everybody talks about him. And then you're like, you got to go out there at, you know, 12 years old and try and beat this kid that is so built up in your mind. So it's hard, it's hard to overcome. And it took me a little while. Um, but eventually, I mean, I, I was competitive with, with those guys and every once in a while I'd sneak a moto win or something, but, uh, I was never, you know, the top guy, which you kind of need to be the top, or at least at that point you needed to be the top guy to get the support to move to the next level. So. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, motocross is all about, uh, the top three, the top five. Uh, you have to be in that group to really make a splash because, uh, I can't remember the last time I made note of somebody that got uh, sixth place at a Loretta Lynn's, uh, amateur national uh, championship. In fact, uh, you usually can't, can't name somebody outside the top three. Uh, and, uh, to be in, in that, uh, that um, that company and and coming in at that time uh, pretty daunting given the fact that uh, there's a, a, a couple of guys in the line whether you're on 125s or 80s that uh, you very well could have had their poster in your wall. Yeah, exactly. And that, like I said, that's psychologically that's t- that's a, a difficult thing for a, a you know a young person to 
overcome and be able to perform at their best. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to say, Oh, well, just go out there and, you know, do what you know how to do and what you practice. And, you know, I mean, that's easier said than done. There's, there's obviously so much that mentally that, that comes into being able to, to perform, you know, at your top level every time. And I mean, there's a lot of guys that practice unbelievably, you know, um, I can run with people at practice that won championships, but I couldn't do it on, I couldn't do it on race day. And, you know, I mean, a lot of that is just, you know, it's mental toughness and some people haven't, some people don't. And I had enough to get me pretty far, but not enough to get me to the top. So, um, you know, there was obviously, I look back on my career and there's bad choices I made and there's, you know, bad situations that were unavoidable that I was in. And, but ultimately it all comes back to, you know, you got to take responsibility for every decision that you make along the way. And, and, um, I think I could have gone further with it if I just had a little more grit, you know, I, I would, I'm a hard worker. Don't get me wrong. Like I'll outwork 98% of the people on the line, but there was, you know, those couple people that either, because they were harder workers or they paid somebody to make sure they did it and, and laid their program out for them. Um, I just, I didn't have that, that little extra, you know, those 2% of people were a little bit more committed than I was. So. Absolutely. Well, uh, it is difficult to find that, uh, that, that one or 2% that uh, so few of us uh, possess, but uh, I'd, I'd say throughout your career, you accomplished quite a bit uh, for a guy who uh, would, would say that uh, he didn't quite have the toughness to, 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 to go that extra mile. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, you got to put it in perspective. Um, it's just, you know, it's like a 10th to, you know, three tenths of a second through a, a turn or a section. And that, that little difference. I mean, there, there's times I look back, you know, um, at races where I was running, you know, within two tenths, five tenths of a second a lap off the guy that won my fastest time that yeah. I'd finish, you know, sixth or fourth or whatever it was. And, um, you know, that, that difference though, it, it's crazy. It's a very small percentage, but it's just, if you can get to that level, then your resources open up so much, you know, you have the money to, to have the tracks, to have the trainer, to, you get the support, you get the better bike, you get more test time, you know, you get those extra advantages, which just makes it that you, you got to get to, you got to get yourself there somehow, you know? And, uh, exactly. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, overall, man, I'm like, I'm, I'm real happy with the way that everything turned out and, most of all, I'm happy I walked away from the sport healthy and kind of on my own terms. And, and I have, you know, a life separate from, from that part of my life. That was, that was my life. And now it's just, you know, that's my past. So, but you, you were able to capture an amateur national title, uh, 1994 on a Suzuki, uh, top step of the podium in the 125B stock class. Um, Honestly, uh, a, a race where or a class where you usually find a lot of fast guys, and uh, you ended you ended up uh, being at, at the top of the heap among guys like uh, uh, <clears throat> Andy Boyer, uh, Randy Valade, Chad Sanner. Chad Sanner was in there, um, yeah, right. and 
many others, you know, like these, these guys were fast and you ended up uh, coming out on top. Uh, not as much luck that year in the, uh, the modified class, but, uh, still, still a pretty good showing considering second in the first moto, uh, behind, um, uh, Joshua Sweet. Yeah, that was a pretty good, um, accomplishment for me. I mean, I think that was one of the rare years where I didn't have like the marquee guy in it, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously helped. I had the mod class one, two, and in the last moto, my bike blew up. So that was a little bit unfortunate, but, um, now the other rider that was really, really good that year was Dustin Nelson and Dustin's um, remains a good friend of mine. And he's actually made a career of, uh, you know, motorsports as well. Um, he's still driving, uh, UTVs for Yamaha and he's a Yamaha test rider and, but uh, that was a guy that I battled to the end with in that, that title. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like one of those situations, like I had mentioned earlier, where I, um, you know, I came away with a title and I, I should have had the other title as well. It's not for a, a bike issue, but, uh, that year for just, I don't know, I mean, whatever the climate was, whatever the bike sales were and whatever the decisions that were made, you know, I won that title. I think I won a title or two at, Honka that year as well and I mean I was pretty you know I was a good up-and-coming guy but I I didn't get any support that next year aside from just part support from Suzuki which was unfortunate because now you look at it and you know the guy that wins the 125 you know or whatever it is the lights classes you know the B classes at Loretta's is like already signed to a multi-year contract no doubt you know and has some some better options it was just the climate back then isn't, you know, there, there's not as much opportunity back then as, as there is now, as far as the number of teams, you could also argue though, that, you know, 2006, seven were also kind of the heyday for, you know, money. And I was involved, you know, in that, during that time too. So I benefited from some of the economic, you know, upswings. And, and I also, unfortunately got hit hard by the the downturn as well. So, well, um, like you'd mentioned that you're, uh, you're a year older than, uh, than Ricky, I believe he's 37. Um, but, uh, uh, you came out of amateurs, uh, almost three years, uh, after and, uh, and no visits to the ranch between 70 or uh, 97 and 98. Um, was that injuries, uh, or, um, what, what happened there? Um, I just, I went back for the pro-am class in 99, but I was racing, um, I turned pro, so I won in 94, and then I broke my thumb just before World Mini that following year, um, and I was going to stay B for the next year because I didn't get any support, or at least stay B for a little bit longer, but I just had injury upon injury for like the next six, eight months, I think I broke my thumb, and then I broke my collarbone, um, so I just decided when I came back, I was going to turn pro. So I turned pro in 95 partway through. Okay. I'd say probably three quarters of the way through 95. Um, and I just raced like regional races. Um, nothing big, but, uh, you know, I was still in high school. So I, I couldn't, right. it's not like I could check out and be gone, but I raced that race in that, uh, in Tyler, the Swan classic or whatever it was kind of a bigger regional event um and just locally 
and then in 96 and I, and I started getting ready for supercross in 96. So yeah, I got 13th my in, AMA uh, license. 13th in yeah, your first got, supercross championship. Not too bad, including eighth place at San Diego. Right. And yeah, that was my third race ever at San Diego where I got eighth, and that was pretty cool. Um, my first one, I remember I was fourth place in the LCQ and they, and they took four out of it. Um, and on the last lap, Rusty Holland, who's, you know, notoriously kind of a dirty rider was behind me and he ended up like pushing really, really high up on the, you know, in the turn and, and I ended up tipping over. And so I wasn't fourth outside on the hay bales and went back to fifth. And then, uh, you know, I was bummed, like cursing inside my helmet and come around and lo and behold, in the last turn, Rusty had taken the guy in fourth out or yeah, he was in for taking the guy in third and so he's laying on the ground and I, I roll by him and get fourth. So that's how I qualified for my first, my first one. Um, and then I, you know, I don't even remember. I don't think I did well at the first one. And then at the second one at Seattle, I was doing a little bit better. I qualified out of the heat. I was doing pretty well in the main. I think I was, you know, 13th or 14th after a couple laps. And then a uh, guy crashed and I hit him and bent my front brake rotor and DNF'd. And then my third round at uh, San Diego, which is, was kind of a home base for me. I lived with uh, Dustin Nelson at the time. And, um, you know, we practiced out there with like Mike Craig and, and a right. few guys locally. So it was kind of like a, a hometown race for me in a way. And I ended up coming out of that thing um, in eighth place, which was, you know, I thought really a good accomplishment for my third race ever as a pro and kind of set the bar um, for where I thought, you know, I should be. And then for the rest of the year, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it again. I, again, I think I put too much pressure on myself to get that. So the rest of that year, I just crashed a lot, but uh, yeah, I mean, overall it was a, it was a decent first year. Um, You know, I think by, by any standards. So. No doubt. A a top 10 finish for any uh, rookie uh, in in their first series, especially their first third uh, pro uh, supercross they make uh, is is a great, uh, great spot. And uh, your buddy, Dustin Nelson, uh, hot on your heels on his Kawasaki in ninth place. Yeah. So we, we celebrated as much as like a couple of uh, whatever 18 year old kids could, you know, we went home and drank some soda, soda pop and, and shot pool or something. So, Hey everybody. This is Jimmy Button, former factory Supercross rider. You're listening to the Big MX Radio Show. We're going to take it to the commercial, and we'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You, too, can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable sweat-absorbing liner and generous eye-port design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. 
for extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey, kids, start out every morning with a fat bowl. In motocross, everyone wants one common thing. To simply enjoy the ride. Sand, clay, loam, or concrete, and everything in between. Riders all want to be able to enjoy their ride. But today is arena cross. Tomorrow is Glen Helen. And Saturday, we're heading to this gnarly sand track. How can we be sure our suspension is always dialed in? For most, employing a full-time practice technician is unrealistic. And even for those who have one, setting suspension is still a chore. Get a measuring tape, scratch a mark on the fender or rear number plate, and attempt some backward math to find 105 millimeters. Does this tape even have millimeters on it? Forget that. Head to Motul. Dot co today and set your sag every time you ride with the Slacker Digital Sag Scale. Let's hear from Johnny Casebeer himself and how this thing works. So uh, really basically you would just uh, stick it on your axle with the magnet, stick the clip on your side plate, basically where the arc of the axle would hit the side plate, and then uh, pull out the retractable cable, hook it to the clip, and turn it on, and then just take the bike off the stand and, and take a measurement. It's that easy. Trust tuning your suspension to Johnny Casebeer and Motul MX. So, what do you think of Rich Taylor? Lighter than air and stronger than steel. So what that means is can move much faster. 2014 X-Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X, Volcano and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys we're building wheels for. Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, if they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to 
WBYAUSA.com today. WUSA, all things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance. He's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown rebuild on your forks or, or shock. Call up Roy Borton today at 204-633-2722. Hey guys, Bill's Pipes is back, and that means the return of legendary performance. Two strokes, check. Four strokes, check. Since 1974, they've been tuning power at its finest for motocross racers, off-road racers, you name it. For you two-stroke lovers, the MX2 Bill's Pipe exhaust system is flat out the right choice to make. Nickel, works, and the brand new cone look is the right system for the job. When it comes to four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to decimate the field anywhere, anytime. So if you want the same pipe used by Billy Leninovich, Sean Collier, Vicky Golden, and the entire Barn Pros Home Depot Yamaha team, head over to Bill'sPipes.com today and never settle. Hey, this is Alex Ray. I don't know if, why you're listening to Brad's podcast, but I'll be back on soon. Fair enough. Uh, so what was the landscape like as far as uh, um, getting support, uh, getting, uh, whether it be uh, contingency from Suzuki or uh, getting bikes, parts, uh, and uh, and as far as uh, how did you set yourself up for uh, uh, gear sponsors and stuff like that? Because at this point, uh, you would have been a uh, an 18-year-old entrepreneur style because uh, you basically have to go out and and find your money. Yeah, and I, I, there really wasn't any. I mean, I was just pretty much taking everything I made and putting it back in, and then my my dad was still helping me out. So um, there was no, I mean, contingency money was a small a drop in the bucket. I mean, what does an eighth place at Supercross pay? I mean, I think it pays a little bit more now in lights, but it was probably like $450. I mean, it's pathetic. And then yeah. Suzuki contingency was probably somewhere around the same, maybe maybe a little bit more. So it, I had no gear money. I had, um, you know, product sponsors, basically, and, and that was that. I mean, I just sort of tried to make it work, and I slept in my – I mean, I went to the truck in a Ford F-150 with a camper shell on the back and my bikes underneath it, and that was, that was our rig, you know. Um, at the time, my dad – was still traveling with me most of the time and um he owned his own business he's a court reporter and he did pretty well um you know i guess like upper middle class type money but he spent it all on racing (laughs) you know so uh it was almost like a bigger passion for him than it was for me which ultimately i think hurt our relationship but um we you know we did pretty well there at the beginning and then um, 97, just injury after injury after injury, you know, I'd come back and get a couple races in and then get hurt again, just 
making stupid decisions and and uh that was kind of unfortunately that was like the story of my first few years of being a pro is I'd go out and feel good and be competitive and have good times and then just get hurt and take a few steps back so well that can be demoralizing uh how does how does one uh, keep their spirits up when uh, they're getting knocked down uh, as often as that and uh, obviously uh these sponsors they look for results and when the results aren't there uh what can you use as a, any type of uh bargaining to uh get by um i mean the I guess like what keeps you going is just that you're ignorant, you know, I mean, honestly, because <laughs> you don't really know anything else, you know, I mean, it's like you put all your eggs in this basket. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, it's not like you have a, somebody knocking down your door to pay you a great big salary to go do something different. I mean, you know, dirt bikes and you know, that's what you said you were going to do. That's what you told everybody at school you were going to do. That's what you, you know, begged your parents to let you do. And I mean, you kind of made your bed, so it's uh, you just try and stay positive and and heal up as quickly as you can and get back back after it. But when it's your only source of income, you know, as I kind of got a little bit, you know, I'm 18. I mean, you know, it's time to kind of sink or swim. I mean, my parents were like, yeah, I mean, they'll they'll help me here and here and there with like a tank of gas or something. But it was uh, it was primarily me trying to fund the program and then getting hurt and. You know, fortunately, I was on their insurance still, and uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a tough road to go down. And I mean, how do you, I don't know how do you attract you know attention more than the next guy that might have similar results? And you know, that's that's the question. I mean, looking at it from the other side now, I mean, as someone that kind of you know would look at riders and and pick who I would, who would I choose to support? I don't know. I mean, it's it's like you can do all these analytics and look at um, results and lap times and, um, you know, the opportunities that they've had and where they live and what their training situation is and if they have a trainer and all these things. But, I mean, does that necessarily equate to a successful guy? I mean, they have to be able to, when you're at the top level, you got to be able to perform, you know, consistently not get hurt, um, make good decisions and get good starts. And I mean, there's just, there's so many things that go into it, but, uh, you know, I don't know. That's the million dollar question. I mean, how, how do you, uh, how, how do you become a top level rider? I mean, most everybody works hard, you know, I don't think there's like a lot of guys that are like a main event level guys that don't work their butt off. So some of it's innate, you know, some of it you're born with and some of it's your, your situation. Do you, did your parents have enough money to, for you to have the bikes, to have the tracks, to have the trainer, to get on that program early enough that you kind of can excel maybe more than the next guy. I don't know if I figure it out, I'll let you know. Fair enough. Well, nowadays it seems like uh, who's ever got the most Instagram followers usually gets the nod. Yeah, that's true, huh? It's all like social media <laughs> driven now, which is funny because that was like my my deal, you know, with Team Solitaire was that's why I got so much attention was because we had a blog and I built a website and, you know, you could kind of follow along with it, which so 
I mean, really like pioneering back then, you know. No kidding. Breaking You're on the, the ground. ground floor of uh, this this World Wide Web, as they call it. Right. So no, and that was fun. I mean, that was a cool part of it for me. Was like the fans that were really passionate, you know, about it and would support you just because they liked you. Like you see all these like like on the moto porn websites, like, you know, vital and all the, the stupid message boards and whatnot. Like people are, they're so judgmental about all the riders and they just talk so much shit about like everything back and forth. And I mean, you know, these guys are like, like sea riders at the local track and, and just have really no clue what it, what it takes and what people sacrifice. And you know what? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, say you put yourself in the public eye and, you know, you got to take criticism. And I mean, when the way I always looked at it was like the only things that affect me or if someone that I respect, you know, has something to say about something I do, well, I'll absolutely listen. But if I don't respect that person, then, you know, their opinion doesn't really matter because, you know, I mean, what have you done? to be to put yourself in a position to, to judge me. And so, you know, it, it's kind of frustrating though, when you see like, you know, you see these kids, a lot of them like sacrificing everything, everything on the line. And then, you know, people are critiquing them for every little thing. It's just like, take over yourself. You know what I mean? Like if, if, I mean, literally if you can't go do it better then why, what gives you the right to talk about it? So that's, I guess my, my little rant. I'll, I'll try and keep it to a minimum. <laughs> no, we encourage it. Uh, rants from those who know are usually uh, are, are usually fulfilled with uh, a lot of truth. And uh, and I, from from a guy like yourself, I know there's a there's a lot of great moments in your career, and I know there was a lot of uh, frustrating moments in your career uh, trying to uh, uh, put things together year after year, coming back from different in- injuries, and uh, basically. Uh, um, Get it squeezing uh, blood out of the stone that is uh, that is professional motocross racing because uh, all too often, especially in Canada, when I look at the uh, the logistics and the economics of uh, professional motocross, uh, there's frankly there's not enough money there. No, and it's it's not just. I mean, it's like industry wide. You know, it's it's just there. There was a time. Was you know like felt when you remember in I think I want to say it was two thousand four ish when the mm-hmm. series split into two separate series like the AMA uh, was going to go race in like Des Moines Iowa and yeah <laughs> just like these are ridiculously stupid places and and you know at the time it was Clear Channel was going to keep their same basic layout and then you know Cooler Heads prevailed in the eleventh hour and they decided to put the series back together, but it was now the FIM world supercross series and the AMA supercross series. Well, from my standpoint, that was like, that was an awesome year because I was basically double dipping. Well, and I was getting paid twice for everything because it was two series. It was like a series within a series. You know, I went to Europe and I did the first couple rounds there. So I was in the FIM series, but then a lot of people, you know, the top guys, a lot of them didn't go to the first races in Spain and, and I can't, I think it was in Holland in Arnhem. Um, yeah. so they weren't eligible for that. So I might finish like eighth. I think I finished eighth at the opener at the official opener at Anaheim. 
Well, that was like eighth in the AMA series, but it was really like fifth in the World Series because three of the guys weren't in it. So I get paid like basically double. And then on top of that, they had that privateer money available. So the, yeah. the climate, the economic climate during that specific time was fantastic. But it didn't last. Okay. You know, yeah, it didn't last it at all, and uh, it was absolutely wild. And that's how we ended up with Heath Foss as our world Supercross champion. Yeah, and and he is—he's like a pretty good story too. I mean, he's a good dude. Like he, um, he was one of those kind of no bullshit guys that didn't really get caught up in the politics of it. And I always appreciated that about him. Like he's a real straight shooter, you know. And uh, yeah. he came from some money and stuff, so he had some advantages. Uh, going in, but you know, he also worked his butt off. He also worked his butt off and, and, um, you know, made himself successful and won that, that series. And, uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, that was like, he can say he's a world champion. I mean, I don't think anybody now that he meets would say, Oh, well, Ricky Carmichael wasn't there. Like, I don't think, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's still a world champion championship and, and, he was there. There was other great guys there, and he beat him. So, yeah, there was there was a ton of great guys in there. Uh, Tim Ferry was in. I believe Tim Ferry was uh, was was at uh, Arnhem at the very least. I'm not sure if he was the one prior to that, but I, from from what I remember, he was uh, he was eligible for that championship, and uh, it was Heath in the end. So, um, and 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 you were eligible for that, and uh, I think there's a lot of races where the two uh, the two of you would have banged bars uh, more often than not. So um, it's uh, kind of a, a a cool thing to have been able to. Uh, to challenge um, legitimately for that title. Yeah, and there was, yeah, there was absolutely times in my career when I was, when I beat Heath and there's, you know, towards the end, he really picked picked it up. I mean, those last couple of years, obviously that year that he won that title, um, he just, what I liked about him and, and it, you know, guys that are similar is, he literally clawed his way up. Like I remember seeing that guy not even making night shows, um, you know, when he first started racing pro and I mean, every year he got better and better and better and better. And, and that's, that's cool to see somebody that just works or, you know, just works, puts their time in and, and continues to improve. And they're not, he wasn't flashy. He wasn't, you know, a really, um, you know, the press didn't, pick up on him you know he wasn't a flashy guy he went out and worked hard and did his job and did it pretty well so and he's the last guy that didn't uh, absolutely wad himself with the number 13 on his uh on his bike yeah i i don't uh yeah i don't get that whole like it it seems like i guess if you believe i don't know i I don't i don't get the whole superstition thing i don't know that being said i don't know that i would necessarily choose to run the number 13 just maybe because of the stigma and i wouldn't want people to people asking you about it every day yeah if i did coincidentally crash and get hurt then people are saying oh you know it's that number but uh you know it's like mike larocco he didn't he changed his number number six or that year that he was number six he he did horrible when he was on the suzuki and he blamed it on you know, it was like three sixes, like one on the front number plate, one on the, each side. So that was like why he had a bad season because he had the mark yeah. of the devil upon himself. 
That's yeah. that's wild. And actually, I, I talked to Steve Lampson about that as to why no one had picked up this, the the number six for a number of years. And now, of course, that's uh, Jeremy Martin's number. And he's like, the the only thing that I've heard from anybody is that there's three sixes on the bike. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Uh, that's wild, man. Yeah. We will reach for for anything, right? I mean, it's kind of, I guess, our our nature. I mean, I think that's why here, and I don't know if it's the same in Canada. I mean, he, almost it like all motocrossers are just like super religious, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I guess you have to feel like, hey, I'm going to do something that I could potentially kill myself at, so I, I need like a backup plan here. Like crash and, and get really hurt you know it happened for a reason it wasn't because i decided to try the 120 grander you know thing i mean i get that i mean I, like uh something bigger but i i was you know if i got hurt it was because i made a mistake not because it was like i'm trying to learn something break my arm in half for the 16th time or I forgot my name because I, you know, I didn't. So. Uh, okay, you I never really wanted part. Like motocrosses are in, inherently uh, head cases. Uh, we, we, we think of uh, uh, like you have like, a lucky pair of socks. We have a lucky pair of this, lucky pair of that. But th- the thing is, is that uh, uh, whether you're wearing your lucky socks or not, uh, you might get a flat tire. You might get pitched over the bars. You might get landed on. It's motocross. It's dangerous. Deal with it. Um, but um, I, I'd like to think that uh, even though you did have quite a few injuries throughout your career, you did have the ability to uh, stay somewhat healthy and continue to uh, to battle through those uh, those injuries and ultimately uh, stay within uh, a pretty uh, respectable uh, national number, being inside the uh, the top forty for uh, the majority of your career. Yeah, I mean, I I had most of my injuries early in my career. I got you know as you should with experience you. you make better decisions and, and put yourself in better positions. And, um, you know, I was pretty consistent there for through the meat of, of, you know, 2004 through eight, I'd say those were, uh, you know, those were all kind of good, good years for me and min- minimal injuries. You know, the ones that I did, I was able to race through and, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, that you have to race to make money, right? So, I mean, you, you can lay it all out on the line for, you know, to do one jump on one track, but you got to remember, you got thirty, you know, one other races that year that you you'd like to be at and be making money at and representing your sponsors at. So, you know, you learn as you get older that every race isn't the most important race. It's the most important thing is being at every race you know, and, and gaining the experience and learning from, you know, from just being out there and getting better and getting, uh, finding your weak points and making them your strengths. And so, yeah, I mean, through it all, I, 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 I'm very fortunate. I've broken wrists and collarbones mainly. I've had a few other things, but wrists and collarbones have been the majority of, of my, uh, so the only thing I, yeah. you know, I just have a lot of concussions. Um, 
I don't know how many exactly. <laughs> um, That's a problem. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't feel effects from them. I feel like I've, you know, I let myself recover from them for the most part. I think, I want to say 97 was, 97 and then 2003 were the two worst years. And I remember 97, I, um, I was like a journeyman, literally just out, like I said, out of my truck or a small box van. And uh, I raced this race in Delta, Ohio, the Delta Chicken Festival, like in conjunction with the Delta Chicken Festival. It was a big, you know, purse-paying race. It was like, you know, a $10,000 pro purse. And, you know, Brian Swink showed up, and he was on Honda of Troy at the time. And so it was a big deal, you know, and I'm just, this, you know, I think uh, a year out of high school, you know, out just trying to make my way. And this is a great, cool opportunity for me to race him just almost like not one-on-one. Obviously, there was a lot of other fast guys there, but but I was, the aside from him, I was the fastest guy there. <clears throat> and uh, so the first one, I hole shot and I led him for like two-thirds of our race. And we battled for a little bit and, and um, he ended up getting by me and, and pulling out a couple seconds. And then, so going into the second moto, I knew, I mean, I had to win it to get the, the majority of the money. And, uh, so I was like real, you know, focused on getting the whole shot and, uh, going to the first turn. And, and I remember like going in and my front end, just kind of skating, skating, skating. And it, it just folded on me. I lost the front end and, and I, it wasn't a hard crash at all. I just like laid down, but I hit my head and it, instantly knocked me out i could not you know for the life of me figure out like i know i didn't i didn't even crash hard what the what the hell's going on here and um so then i like the next day you know i i think i i was riding for axo at the time and they had these carbon fiber helmets that they'd been giving just like the the top their top guys you know their top amateur team or whatever and um and i talked to a couple other people that had similar experience and lo and behold, I think that helmet was, you know, like you is basically like wearing nothing. And, yeah. um, so that year, I mean, once I figured that out, obviously I stopped wearing that helmet. Um, and then the other really bad time was in 2003, I rode for, um, KBC helmets, which was one of those deals that you live and learn, right? Like, I took the money. I mean, they paid me yeah. 15,000. They paid me $15,000 just to wear the helmet. Um, I mean, versus my other offers were like 2,500 bucks, you know, I mean, it was kind of uh, a no brainer, excuse the pun, but I would gladly give all the money back for the brain cells that I lost wearing that helmet. Cause I, I had a couple of similar deals where it didn't crash hard, fell over in a turn, or even just, uh, you know, kind of stopped quickly and I'd end up like seeing stars. So, uh, that was a definite lesson was it stuff, you know, the money is great, but you know, pick the product and then figure out from there, you know, pick a good product to start with. So should have stuck in the fly helmets for 2003 because uh, I believe you're one of the first guys to ever, uh, wear one professionally, uh, in 2002. So I'm trying to figure it out. I know um, the first year they made gear was 2001, I believe. And I wore the gear only. 
I wore the gear only to start with. And I mean, you know, I can only say this because now fly is like elite level, right. And awesome. But I mean, it was the ugliest gear the first year, you know, it was like, it, it was not great. You know, it was Terry Bailey, who is a dear friend of mine, but you know, I mean, a first year kind of deal trying to get it out there. And, um, I really like and respect Terry. Um, and he's a great guy. He's always supported me, um, no matter what. And so, you know, when he, when we talked about it, I'm like, you know, this stuff's not the best looking stuff, but I believe in, I believe in the, the vision and I believe in Terry that he's going to, going to grow this brand and boy, did he. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, 2001 was the first year I was in the gear, I want to say. And then 2002, I was in the helmet, something like that. I don't know. Again, the concussions play into it here, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the money (laughs) of some of those deals I did, like I said, I'd give it all back if I, if I could get back some of the, some of the brain cells that I lost as a result. No kidding, man. Well, um, uh, I got to imagine that you also might have uh, lost a few brain cells uh, riding with uh, with with uh, Team Mexico because uh, word has it you were paid in tequila. Yeah, Cali Mexico was that was fun. It was my first experience of realizing the facade of a motocross team. It's like um, those old western towns, you know, where it's just literally like plywood with paint on it, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. you walk through and there's no, no building behind buildings. it. Um, again, super fun, great group of people underfunded and underfunded. I mean, that is just the most recurring theme in the sport, right? I mean, yeah, people, they all have the greatest of intentions. We all do. I mean, I did with team solitaire. Um, but in the end, it's like, where do you draw the line on something that you're passionate about? Like if you get a million dollars, right, you're still underfunded compared to, you know, Mitch's team or, you know, um, Geico or any of the factory teams, you're still running at a huge deficit. So where do you draw the line on like what you're going to spend on your engine package or your suspension package or, you know, your personnel? Because, you're trying to get better. So it's tough to manage. It's really tough to do any business that you're, I think that you're that passionate about that doesn't have like a black and white, you know what I mean? Like if you're passionate about plumbing, yeah, I mean, great. Like you can be super prepared and you can do like the best work. And I mean, your materials costs are like a fixed price, but there's no fixed price on building like a bike, you know? Like you could spend eight grand and build a, you know, buy a bike um, and, you know, it's stock and it's decent, right? You can spend 12 grand and build a pretty good bike that's pretty competitive. You could spend 20 grand and build a, a, you know, more competitive. You can spend 200 grand and there's still more stuff that you could do. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's or like, just to where be do you, able to change those two thousand two hundred thousand dollar parts out just that much quicker? Right, like the better engine you build, and the more the right, the bigger parts budget you have to have, and the more money devoted, you know, to the the upkeep. And so it's it's not like a fixed thing. So um, County Mexico was super fun. I mean, it was uh, it was Phil Lawrence, um, Eric Vallejo, 
Pedro Gonzalez and myself. I was underage. I was, it was 98, so I was uh, 19 when the series started. And, I mean, we had the whole front of our chocolate Cotte beer. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Phil was a partier. And, and, you know, he was friends with Fro and, and Jer- you know, Jeremy and, and all the top guys. And at the time, I didn't hardly know anybody, you know. I was pretty new into it. And so um, a pretty funny story about that. So it was my eight, it was my, I'm going to say my 19th birthday, 19th okay. birthday. Um, down at Daytona. And is that right? No, it was Tampa Supercross back when they had Tampa. And so yeah. after the race, like Fro had an after party. And of course it was at Mom Venus, which is a really popular strip club down there. Um, and you know, Phil told, you know, all the guys that, Hey, it's Ryan's birthday. So, uh, you know, Fro ha- talks to them and they drag me up on stage and, and strip me down to like, literally like I'm wearing whitey tighties. I mean, you know, I've nice. like, dude, I haven't been out of, you know, I mean, I'm like stuck in, uh, you know, little kid fashion still. And, um, so the strippers got a like a leather belt around my neck, choking me out, and one of them like spanking me on the ass, and I'm in front of like all of my heroes, you know what I mean, like <laughs> Jeff Emig and Jeremy McGrath, and like all these guys that I'm just so embarrassed. And uh, I'm loving this, by the way. Yeah, they're you know, and and so it was just one of those experiences where you know I grew up a lot that night, like I had never ever been in. I mean, I'd never been to a strip club. I'd never drink alcohol. I've never had, you know, I was like the most straight laced kid you could possibly think of. And, uh, yeah. you know, here I am in the situation in a seedy, you know, strip club in Tampa, Florida. I mean, if Florida itself is like just a giant strip club to me, it's just dirty and gross. But, um, <laughs> anyway, it's, uh, it was a, eye-opening experience and one that, you know, I, I would probably relive plenty of times throughout my career, just uh, probably a little bit more on the mature side, I guess. Uh, so like, was that, was that about as crazy th- as things got with Phil or, uh, are there many stories look quite like that? Um, like I said, I was, I was and am pretty straight laced guy. Like I, yeah, yeah. I, didn't start even really drinking alcohol until like my late twenties. So I was more focused on racing throughout, I'd say three quarters of my career. Um, the only time when I really had a lot of fun and let loose was like after I got divorced. Um, so, I mean, my career was kind of like almost pretty much in the twilight at that, that point. But I just, I, I had this like conscience where you know, you say you're superstitious about, um, you know, putting on your socks a certain way or whatever, whatever it is. Like I could never, if I had a beer, you know, during the week and then I didn't race well, I would be like, Oh man, I shouldn't have had that beer. I just have this guilty type conscience. So I, I would pretty much for the most part, I would, you know, I'd leave before things got too crazy and, and things changed a lot from like 98 to, you know, early two thousands, like, there wasn't the partying like there was back when those guys were, you know, when yeah. Emig was, Ricky king, you know, so 
It was just a uh, different, you know, it, it shifted. It shifted more towards fitness and, and being, you know, that clean cut guy. And so I probably would have done a lot better had I come in five years earlier, because I think those guys didn't take it as quite as serious. I'm not saying that they weren't capable and great talented riders, but I think there was a little bit more opportunity before like the Ricky Carmichael era of everybody's like training like triathletes. No kidding. It was, it was a different time and uh, you definitely uh, saw some both, both sides of the coin. You saw, you saw a fro and, and Jeremy who are like, they still, I'm sure those guys still worked hard. I'm sure they still uh, rode tankfuls of gas, but uh, definitely approach things a little bit differently than the machine that was uh, Ricky Carmichael who uh, for, for, uh, basically, the the balance of or the, your entire life on two wheels, you spent uh, trying to, to trace around the number four. Yeah, for sure, and um, and I think also, you know, something else notable about that time when I came in was everyone was very very accessible back then. Like I yeah. didn't know those guys coming in, but you know, like Jeff Emig was always super cool to me. I was nobody back then, you know, and and I remember that you know to this day, like. McGrath would take the time to talk to me where, you know, later on when some of the other guys came in and I mean, they just weren't, they just didn't have that same like openness, you know, the whole, like everything got secretive and everybody was out to get each other. And it just, it changed a lot, you know, um, it became like kind of less of a family type of environment, but also it changed because, you know, when you first, when I first went to Supercross, it was like a three-day ordeal. I mean, you were there, like, teching, you know, on, like, Thursday. Yeah. And then, you know, you had a practice on Friday and then qualifiers. And it was, like, a major thing. And then same with Nationals. I think, like, Hangtown, you had to check in. I remember at my first race, you had to be up there Thursday. I think you rode a little bit Friday, and then you had Saturday off, and you raced Sunday. It was just really strange. I mean, you had to you know, you couldn't have a real job and do that. You had to be completely, that had to be it. So, you know, a lot easier, cleaner, more sanitary, just like go in, ride, and then leave. Which, uh, you know, it's good if you have a family and you have stuff to get back to, but it sort of lost the family, like camping, hanging out with your buddies, going golfing, you know, during the downtime that it used to have. Definitely. So uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you before I uh, let you go, and we're running out of time here, but uh, perhaps we're going to have to do a, uh, a part two with, uh, with, with Ryan Clark. But uh, what, what, uh, at what point did uh, Team Solitaire be something that you needed to, uh, to take on and, um, and something that you felt that needed to be uh, um, uh, your way uh, to go to the races? And uh, yeah, so how, how did that all start? Well, you know, I told you a little bit about my experience with uh, Cali, Mexico. Um, just the fact that, you know, it was it looked cool and it looked like a legit deal, but, you know, the bikes weren't great and there wasn't a ton of support there and we were kind of on our own for a lot of stuff. And then um, similar experience in 2000, which this is kind of a funny story too. So going into 99, I had a really good year and I did it completely on my own with a an engine builder that, you know, was a total cokehead. 
nice. this guy we found in Albuquerque, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, it was recommended by a friend, and this guy built my, my 99KX125. It was just phenomenal for a 99KX125. I don't know if you've ever ridden one, but they're yeah. horrible to start with. Um, and my bike was, was fantastic. I ended up like winning heat race at Anaheim. I was real close to like top three in the series. I think it was only six points out of third in the series. I mean, driving to the races by myself, like I had this random girl trainer from a gym in Albuquerque was riding, you know, at this little rinky dink track that I'd built in a Bobcat. I mean, it was like mom and pop show and I had a, a fantastic year. Um, well, I had a couple offers that next year. One of them was factory KTM. Keeping in mind, it's, you know, 1999. Factory KTM is not really the program that you wanted to be on. Um, I had another offer from DeMarini Suzuki. Um, Ray DeMarini had called me, and if uh, if you're not familiar, DeMarini bats were like, you know, like distance bats. Yeah. Uh, for softball guys and uh, a real big company. Well, Ray called me personally and he's like, Hey Ryan, I really like, you know, you're, you know, you have good results and I really like your work ethic and kind of what you're all about. And um, so I had these two offers, you know, both for pretty decent money for, uh, you know, 20 year old kid. And uh, I ended up going with DeMarini Suzuki. Um, because I just believed that the bike was going to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a factory support deal. They Ray had so much money that, you know, it just seemed like whatever he needed to do, he was going to do. Well, before the series even started, he was diagnosed with cancer and, um, he passed away like a year later. Um, so all of his plans and all of the structure just, it just went to hell in a handbasket and they hired a team manager that didn't really know what he was doing. And my mechanic was, I mean, the guy they put me with again, I thought he was like popping pills or, I mean, he was just not mentally there and physically I couldn't find him half the time. So it was just a really horrible situation. It wasn't better than what I did in 99 when I had like my own coked out engine builder, you know? (laughs) So I, um, I decided that, you know, that's it for me and teams. Like, unless I get on something really, really legit, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I'm going to just continue to try and build my own program. So in 2001, um, I did, Hold on, I don't want to get myself like too mixed up here. In 2001, I think I just did a privateer deal. And then in Yamaha's. 2002, right, with Yamaha's. And then in 2002, I started a, started basically what was going to become Team Solitaire with um, this guy out of Pennsylvania that ended up being a super kind of flaky guy that made a bunch of promises and didn't come through on them, kind of par for the course with uh in, with in motocross. motocross really what's that in yeah motocross? right i'm shocked so anyway i we went like two-thirds of the year with his rig and um you know kevin johnson keith johnson 
and support from Bobby J's Yamaha and Albuquerque and a little bit of support from Yamaha and just and fly. Obviously, Terry Baisley was a huge part of my career from the, the very beginning. Um, and then at, that sort of started coming undone because I just, I can't even remember the situation, but um, it just started coming undone. So I was like, you know what? No more partnerships done. Going to just do it on my own. So I, I went out and I just bought a truck and I said, and I was already writing that column solitaire for racer X. So that was kind of where the, the name came from. And I kind of figured it's like a group of individuals, you know, a group of people um, that were doing it on their own and we're going to join forces. So team solitaire seemed like a, a good name for it. And uh, just started small, started on maybe a 40, budget, $40, $50,000 budget. Um, built it up to where we were on, I think the biggest budget we ever had was about a, a half million dollars. And uh, full semi, full staff, and, you know, Bobby Canary on the podium at San Diego. Bikes, you know, we had some good bikes. We had some not good bikes. We did the best we could with what we had, and I think we had probably more fun than anyone. So we we enjoyed it. Um, my mechanic, Jesse Block, was with me for, you know, most of it. Um, and we, we built something that like a lot of people could relate to. And I think that's why so many people got behind it. It was just like, you know what, we're just winging it, man. We're doing, we're going to go out and build the best program we can with the amount of money that we have. And ultimately that was the downfall too, was we built the best program that we could with the amount of money we had. And whether we had, you know, 50,000 or 500,000, we'd spend 10% of our budget every year trying to get to the next level, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then in ultimately what kind of killed it was 2008, our title sponsor. Um, I mean, I didn't get a penny of our contract from them and they filed uh, bankruptcy protection. And so there was no way that I was going to get it. And so I, I tried to ride it out and I self-funded it, a lot of it. And that's where a lot of my money went too. It was just, because I didn't want to, you know, not pay a rider for, you know, because I had made commitments to these guys and I didn't want to back out on my commitments to those guys. So it was tough. It was tough trying to, trying to bring the, bring it into the, the ship, into the harbor, so to speak. But uh, yeah, that economic downturn was, it was tough. I, I think it hit all, it hit everybody, it hit all the teams and money went from getting huge, you know, dollars from clothing and, apparel and you know goggles to getting like peanuts compared to what you know what we were before so it was a tough it was a tough time but uh it was a good run and we had a lot of success we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of fans and that was that was always the most fun for me was just like hanging out with the fans and and meeting the kids that you know and i still even occasionally get letters from people that say that you know, I influenced them in a positive way and whether it was, you know, to pursue racing or to pursue school, you know, that something I'd written or a story that I'd told in in my column or something I'd said to them personally had, you know, resonated with them. And so that's, you know, that's all you can kind of hope. And, and then now, I mean, I have that, obviously that influence over my kids and I hope that the experiences that I've lived through and 
the failures that I've had, the successes that I've had can posit, they can learn something from it. So they don't have to go through the same thing to have that, that knowledge. And, and, uh, we all just are happy and healthy and, you know, enjoy life and everything and all the opportunities that we're given. So I was given a lot of great ones and I thank my parents for that. And, uh, it was a good run. No doubt, man. Well, uh, um, uh, I, I know I, you'd mentioned uh, before we hit the air that uh, I only had you till about one thirty, and it is one thirty your time right now. Uh, and uh, we're only at around 2003 or 2004-ish, if that. So uh, I, I prescribe a, a part two. Uh, we'll cut it off right here. But uh, and, and and when we when we come back to this, let's dive a little bit deeper into uh, solitaire and, and some. some some stories of of that team and uh, and 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 keep uh, digging a little bit deeper because uh, I think we've uncovered some pretty cool stuff here. Uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time here on the on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show. Uh, before you run away, uh, l- let us uh, know how you've been helping out the the guys uh, the the athletes over at the Slayton Racing Team because I know you've been uh, uh, lending a little bit of your knowledge, uh, setting up a bike and, and some of the the, the um, approaching the the riding to both Zach Commons and uh, Cole Thompson. Yeah, that, so I, I got the opportunity to work with uh, with the guys at Flight and Racing, and, and they're just a really good, you know, group of people, like uh, definitely in it for the right reasons, just enthusiasts and fans and and um, just enjoy being at the races. And, uh, you know, they the the riders needed a little bit of guidance and, and you know, a little bit, me just kind of with the experience, it, it helped to, um, to kind of guide everything a little bit and, and put in my two cents. So just kind of like, I guess, more of a consulting, uh, type of a deal. And so Zach and Cole both are tremendously talented, obviously. Um, and just need that recipe, that right, uh, mixture of things to get to the next level, you know, much, I guess, like I did when I was their age. And, uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, I can positively influence their careers. You know, I don't think either of them, either of them have had the year that they've, they've wanted to. However, I think they've both been successful in, in accomplishing um, certain things to move them to the next, the next phase. Uh, Zach qualified for his first main event, you know, in his first try. Um, he, he did have a, a con- sustain a concussion and he had a pretty traumatic head injury uh, a little bit over a year ago. So for him, you know, just we got to be extra cautious um, and, and make sure that we're, we're taking all the precautions that, that we need to, because, you know, at the end of the day, this is just dirt bikes. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of guys riding a dirt bike around, you know, around a track. So um, what I like about Zach is just, he, he has like such a zest for life and he's such a good individual. He's just a good kid. Um, he and his family are just great to be around. So, I mean, more than anything, I think like just hanging out with Zach and his family and then getting the chance to, you know, get to know Cole a little bit better and be part of his program because the kid has so much skill. He's, his talent level is just, just phenomenal. He just needs, um, you know, little, little things to, to put, put it all together. And once he finds that, and there won't be any stopping him. So um, just happy to try and help those guys. And, and you know, if uh, 
you know, the president, John, or the owner, Bruce, you know, they have a question about, you know, something, they call me up and I give them my two cents and, and um, that way we can kind of all, you know, try and do what's best for the, for the team and for the, the guys and, and go out there and put together, put, uh, put a good show in on the weekend. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I'll let you get uh, get going, but I, like I said, I really appreciate you giving me the time to uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit, and uh, we'll, we'll reconnect again soon to uh, complete part two here. Um, but uh, yeah, like uh, you have yourself a great rest of your day. Don't hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we'll cut it off right there. All righty. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.